0: If you haven't done so already, please turn in your copy of God's inerrant, inspired, and infallible word to Genesis chapter 47. We're going to pick up in verse 13. If you are using one of the Bibles provided, you can find the passage beginning on page 40. Page 40. Genesis 47, beginning there in verse 13. On July 15, 2015... The musical, Dear Evan Hansen, had its world premiere at the Arena Stage Theater just across the river in Washington, D.C. From the Arena Stage Theater, the show went on to Broadway, established a national and world tour, uh, along the way winning six Tony Awards. The show is about an anxious high schooler named Evan Hansen. Uh, Evan spins a web of deceit, which is unsurprisingly followed by a wake of destruction. Evan's web of deceit began with a claim to a friendship that he never had. And at the center of that web of deceit was a deep desire of wanting to be known and not left alone. It's a pretty natural desire to, be, to want to be known and not left alone. But that natural desire is no excuse for deceit. But, but I wonder if you have ever had that desire yourself of wanting to be known, of wanting a friendship, to be with someone, not left alone. One of the great comforts of the Bible is that God knows his people. And in his love and grace, he pledges to be with his people always, even to the end of the age. And this morning, as we study Genesis 47 and 48 together, we see the patriarch Jacob pass on this truth to his descendants, that God is always with his people and that he is for his people. We are nearing the end of the final major section of the book of Genesis, and thus nearing the end of the book of Genesis, we've been in chapters 37 to 50. Uh, those chapters have been recounting how God has been faithful to the promises uh, to his, this patriarch, Jacob. Uh, Jacob, in the narrative, he's also known as Israel, so he's a representative of the people of Israel and the 12 tribes who will bear uh, his name. As we'll, we'll see today, the, the famine that Joseph predicted that would come to pass has come to pass and it, it continues to threaten the people of Israel and the people of Egypt. It threatens the future. Not only is death always knocking at the door by way of this famine, but we're going to be told that the time is drawing near for Israel, for Jacob, to die. The, the great concern presented in our text today is what will happen to the people of Israel as they go into the future without their patriarch. The answer that Moses gives through this narrative is that God is with his people and will be with his people. While Egypt suffers in the famine, God's people actually grow strong. While Israel, while Jacob is on his deathbed, he rallies to encourage the faith of the future generations to believe that the God who has shepherded him his whole life long will be their shepherd into the future. The message of Genesis 47 and 48 is that God was with his people in the past, and he's with us too. So here's the sermon in a sentence. Beloved, God is with you and will be with you to the end. God is with you and will be with you to the end. But what does that mean? It means that you should trust God in the present and trust God for the future. Those two points are going to form the outline of the rest of the sermon. Trust God in the present And trust God for the future. There should be a full outline in the bulletin that may help you to follow along. Let's begin with our first point. Trust God in the present. Follow along now as I read Genesis 47, verses 13 to 28. Genesis uh, 47, verses 13 to 28. Now there was no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. And when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? For our money is gone. And Joseph answered, give your livestock and I will give you food in exchange for your livestock. If your money is gone, so they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the herds, and the donkeys. He supplied them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. And when that year was ended, they came to him the following year and said to him, We will not hide from my lord that our money is all spent. The herds of livestock are my lord's. There is nothing left in the sight of my lord but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your eyes both we and our land? Buy us and our land for food, and we with our land will be servants to Pharaoh. And give us seed that we may live and not die, and that the land may not be desolate. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, and for all the Egyptians and for all the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was severe on them. The land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other. Only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived on the allowance that Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. Then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. And at the harvest, you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh and four fifths shall be your own as seed for the field and as food for yourselves and your households and as food for your little ones. And they said, you have saved our lives. May it please the Lord. We will be servants to Pharaoh. So Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt. And it stands to this day that Pharaoh should have the fifth. The land of the priests alone did not become Pharaoh's. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it, and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147. Now there's a great contrast presented in these verses. While the Egyptians flounder in the famine, the people of God flourish. And that's because God is with his people, keeping his promises to bless them. That's why we can trust God in the present. You see there in verses 13 to 26 uh, that Egypt flounders during the famine. Verses 13 and 14, they tell us the situation was severe. There was no food in all the land. Uh, Moses even lets us know that in verse 14, there wasn't even any food in Canaan. And this signals to us the goodness of God in moving his people from Canaan to Goshen. Uh, That had happened back in Genesis 46. As we learned there, not only was Goshen the best of the land, but it was also a place where the people of Israel could tend their flocks and their flocks could graze. God knew what was coming and he perfectly timed the reconciliation of the brothers and the relocation of the family of Jacob, of Israel. And remember, Jacob, this patriarch, the leader of this family, Jacob was hesitant about that move. You know, sometimes... We don't understand why God is making such massive shifts in our lives. Sometimes we don't understand why he's moving us from one place to another. Sometimes we don't understand why he's moving us really from one difficulty to another. But as we see here and over and over again in the book of Genesis, God has a good plan for his people, even if we can't see it in a moment. It takes faith to believe the truth that God is good and that he always does good. Verse 14, it also tells us that Joseph was busy with the work of selling the grain that Pharaoh stored up during those seven years of plenty. And we read that Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt in the land, and in the land of Canaan. The idea is that Joseph is collecting every last penny in Pharaoh, into Pharaoh's coffers. Pharaoh is growing wealthy and the people are growing worried. In verse 15, the people of Egypt make a demand. They say, give us food, they say to Joseph. And in verse 16, Joseph gives an answer. He says there's no such thing as a free lunch. There has to be an exchange of goods. There's no such thing as a welfare system in the ancient world there in Egypt. If you want to be given food, then you must give your livestock to Pharaoh. Well, according to verse 17, that's exactly what the people did. Now, Moses is not trying to lay out a comprehensive economic policy in this passage. He is showing how the people of Egypt floundered in the famine, how Joseph administered Pharaoh's policies, and especially how Israel flourished. Nevertheless, there are some economic applications that we can learn from this text. Here's the first one. The people of Egypt were forewarned of the coming famine. Along with paying their taxes in grain to Pharaoh during the years of plenty, they should have personally stored up and prepared for the coming famine as best they could. They had that knowledge, and wisdom is putting knowledge into practice. It is wise to save resources in years of plenty, in preparation for potential years of scarcity. That personal preparation is your responsibility. No one else can wisely save for you and your household. It is something that you must do. Give to the government your taxes, give to God your offerings, and give your savings account a reasonable portion of your resources in preparation for potential scarcity. Estimates of what is wise and the amount you should save will vary, but talk seriously and openly with a faithful Christian whom you have seen manage their finances well and to the glory of God. As I often say, humility gets help. So put the wisdom of that faithful brother and sister that they give you into practice. Honestly, share your, your situation with them. Trust that they love you and care for you and want to help you. And then put that wisdom into practice. Now, after Pharaoh had received all of Egypt's coins and cows, the people of Egypt came to Joseph one more time there in verse 18. This time, instead of leaving the terms of negotiation up to Joseph and Pharaoh, the people of Egypt, they they make an offer. Uh, They offer to sell themselves and their land. This is their idea. They ask to come into Pharaoh's service. Now, at this point, some translations will call this slavery. And it was slavery, a form of slavery in the ancient uh, world. But it was an altogether different kind of slavery than we normally think of when we think of slavery here in this Western American context. We, when we think of slavery, we tend to think of that sinful man stealing, that chattel slavery that took place here in the United States in the 18th and 19th centuries. Uh, And as I said, this is a different kind of slavery or servitude. It's a voluntary and economic arrangement between two parties and not something done on the basis of ethnicity. Now, while this is taking place in Egypt, a little later, really, in the history of Israel, uh, in Israel, it was actually allowed to sell himself into servitude in order to pay off his debts. Uh, You can read about that in Exodus 21. Now, he would be released from that servitude and that arrangement during the year of Jubilee as his debts were considered clear. Uh, And this made Israel's form of servitude a different uh, form than any other nation in the ancient Near Eastern world, including uh, Egypt. You see that there are that, language of the passage just continued on until this day. But even setting aside this release during the year of Jubilee uh, for an Israelite, if he found uh, a relationship with his master so beneficial, he could even, he and his family could, could entrust himself to his master his whole life long. He could arrange a lifelong agreement. Uh, so, so that's what the, the people of Egypt proposed. Turning over their land and their lives to Pharaoh uh, in, in, into a service in exchange for seed, really, to sow the land. Now, in verses 20 and 21, we learn that Joseph, he accepted this arrangement, but it's immediately followed on by an exemption there in verse 22. Do you see it? The priests and their land were not to be taxed or taken. Why? Well, uh, it used to be a common belief around the world uh, that you could never, nor should you ever, tax God. Uh, It used to be a common belief around the world that religious institutions were valuable for society, and that belief is waning. So, for example, in 2022, Arlington County announced that it would transition from funding the stormwater program from the sanitary district tax to assessing a stormwater utility fee based upon a property's impervious surface. So think of like hard driveway, right? That's an impervious surface. Arlington County informed residents that this would even impact tax exempt properties such as churches. According to the Tax Foundation, a tax is a mandatory payment or charge collected by a local, state, and national government from individuals or businesses to cover the cost of general government services, goods, and activities. Now, Arlington County can call it a stormwater management fee all that they want, but it's let's be honest, it's a tax. And such creative taxes are cropping up across the country. It was not Joseph's policy to tax the Egyptian priests or to take their land. A practice like this would actually be later enshrined in Israel's law. The priests in Israel would be given cities scattered throughout Israel, and they would be provided for by the taxes of the tribes of Israel. And in verses 23 to 25, we see that while Joseph will accept the labor and the land of the people of Egypt, he will also provide seed for them to sow in their land. The people of Egypt were essentially becoming tenant farmers for Pharaoh. Whatever they produce from the seed, they are required to give a fifth to Pharaoh, you see there. And four fifths they could keep as seed for the field and as food for their households. That's a a 20% tax. Now, you might be inclined to think that 20% tax is outrageous, but I'm told that currently in America, families pay about 28% in taxes. So as we read these verses, our temptation is probably to see this situation as altogether bad. But did you notice what the people of Egypt themselves proclaimed in verse 25? You see it there? You have saved our lives. Remember, Egypt was on the brink of death. Joseph's wise administration was a blessing to the people of Egypt. It gave them a chance to live and not die. Those were their choices. This was a choice for them between life and death. They were floundering with no idea of how to survive the famine. But Joseph's leadership was a blessing to them. Well, the Egyptians were losing their possessions to Pharaoh. Did you notice what was happening among the people of Israel there in Goshen? You see, in verse 27, they gained possession and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. God had promised to go with Jacob and his family down to Egypt in Genesis chapter 46, verse 3. God promised that he would make Jacob into a great nation. And God, we're seeing here, is keeping that promise. This nation build is hurry even now in the midst of this famine. Verses 27... In 28, they, they recall the promises of God when he promised to bless Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and their offspring throughout the whole book of Genesis. In a foreign land, God's people flourish. In the midst of famine, God's people flourish. God's people can grow in the most desperate, destitute, destructive, and depraved places. Beloved, never doubt what God can do in the lives of his people When the storm clouds seem to gather, God can make his people grow even in present difficulty. Just step back and consider the whole flow of these verses, right? We're given a a long section on the trials of the Egyptians with Joseph, an Israelite, stepping in to save them. But then we're given a short synopsis on Israel's prosperity. God is with his people, keeping his promises to bless them. That's the punch of the passage. And it should encourage us to trust God wherever we are and whatever we are going through. Now, we shouldn't always expect economic prosperity. Sometimes God in his wise providence seems fit to bring financial difficulty or other difficulty upon his people. But that doesn't mean he loves you any less or that he's being unfaithful to his promises or that he's not with you. As we've been learning at Bible study on Wednesday night, our blessings in Jesus Christ are first and foremost spiritual and eternal. Romans eight seventeen reminds us that we are co-heirs with Christ. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14 teaches us that we will inherit eternal life. As Jesus said in John 11, verse 25, though we may die, yet shall we live. Matthew chapter 25, verse 34 tells us that our inheritance is the eternal kingdom of God. Of God that has been prepared for us from before the foundation of the world. Our inheritance is sealed with God's promise, according to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. First Peter chapter 1, verses 4 and 5 teaches us that our inheritance is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for us, and that by God's power we are being guarded through faith for a salvation that's ready to be revealed at the last time. We are being guarded. Today, in preparation for that last and final day. Beloved, God is at work now. God is with you now. And you can trust him now in the uncertain present. But our passage also teaches us that we can trust God for the future. This is the second point of our passage. The second point that our passage makes. Trust God for the future. And as we begin to look at this portion of our passage, let's just look at Jacob, Israel's personal trust first. So follow along as I read Genesis 47 verses 29 to 31. Genesis 47 verses 29 to 31. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers carry me out of Egypt and bury me in the burying place he answered i will do as you have said and he said swear to me and he swore to him then israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed isn't this remarkable here is an old man preparing to die and he has hope for the future moses states the matter in no uncertain terms the time drew near that Israel must die. Unless the Lord Jesus returns, we will all die. We all have an appointed time in which we must die according to God's plan and providence. And the question that each one of us should face is this, do we so believe and cling to the promises of God that like Jacob, we are filled with hope for our future? In these verses, Jacob, Israel, he makes Joseph pledge or swear to see to it that his bones are carried up out of Egypt. We've actually seen this kind of pledge before in the book of Genesis. Back in Genesis chapter 24, we saw this kind of pledge where a man puts his hand under under another man's thigh. Uh, Back in Genesis 24, Abraham was old, he was advanced in years, and he made his servant place his hand under his thigh and swear that he would keep Abraham's son Isaac from taking a wife from among the Canaanites. Uh, He made him pledge that instead, he would secure a wife for Isaac from among his kindred. Now oaths, pledges like this, they often have signs attached to them in order to solemnize and underscore the seriousness of the commitment that's being made. So by placing his hand under Israel's thigh, Joseph was symbolizing that he was willing to come under Israel's authority uh, and that God would hold him accountable should he fail to carry this promise out. But why would Israel do this? Why would he ask for his bones to be buried back in Canaan? Because he trusts God's promises for the future. You see, in Genesis chapter 46, verse 4, God promised Israel that he would bring him back up to the promised land again. Victor Hamilton put it like this, Jacob knows that there is to be no permanent residence in Egypt for his people. Egypt is to Jacob and his family what the ark was to Noah a temporary shelter from the disaster on the outside. You see, Jacob believed that God would preserve him and his descendants from the disaster of the famine. And he also believed that God would keep his word. And he's asking Joseph to be the instrument through which God keeps his word. Jacob is also telling Joseph, this land that we're in in Egypt, it's not my home. My home and my heart are in Canaan. And the land that God, that's the land that God promised to give to his people. Do you see how Jacob and Israel's faith was instructive to Joseph too? He was encouraging Joseph to trust in God for the future as well. I mean, Joseph, he lived the majority of his life in Egypt. To Joseph, that was his home. And so by way of this deathbed testimony from his father, Joseph was learning that the people of God live for and they long for a better country. That is especially a heavenly one. That's what the writer to the Hebrews teaches us about the Old Testament saints who died in faith. So in Hebrews chapter 11 verse 16, he said that they they died in faith knowing that even the earthly Canaan was a type and shadow of the heavenly Canaan that was yet to come. Christian, will you live trusting God for your future dwelling place in glory? Will you tell the present generation in the words of that old hymn, That you have a home in glory land that outshines the sun. That you have a robe in glory land that outshines the sun. That you have a crown in glory land that outshines the sun. And above all, that you have a savior in glory land that outshines the sun. Jacob is telling Joseph, Egypt is not my home. Are you telling others around you that this world is not your home? You have a future home. You trust God for it. This is Israel's personal trust in Yahweh, that God will keep his promises to it, bring his bones up back to Canaan. And it's also predicting, because Israel is the representative head of the people of Israel, predicting that God will bring his people out of slavery too. He's trusting God for the future. After he made Joseph swear to him, We read the words, Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. Jacob, Israel, he was ready to die. You are only ready to die when you can trust your future entirely to God. Beloved, I've stood by a number of deathbeds in my 15 years of pastoral ministry. I've seen those who love the Lord Jesus be at peace with their future, knowing that perhaps in a matter of hours or days, they would go home to be with the Lord. I remember standing by the bed of Gaynell Mallard, who was 104. She still had two years to go. She made it to 106. But do you know what Gaynell Mallard told me at 104 years old? She quoted the entire 23rd Psalm. Beginning with the words, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And ending with the words, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Is that your confidence that you will dwell in the house of the Lord forever? Is that your personal trust? Is that your confidence for the future that you will be with the Lord Jesus? Friend, have you trusted in Jesus Christ for your eternal salvation? You see, we have all been made in God's image, made to love him, serve him, and live our lives for him. But sadly, each and every one of us have sinned against God. Each one of us have loved ourselves, served ourselves, lived for ourselves. We have disobeyed God's commands. That's what the Bible calls sin. The Bible teaches us that the wages of sin is death. That for our working in sin, we deserve to be paid eternal death. Because we have rebelled against the infinite, eternal, and holy God. Our sins deserve to be punished forever in hell by His infinite, eternal, and holy wrath. But the good news of the Bible is that God, in His great grace and love, has sent His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to save sinners like us and to secure our eternal future. Jesus did that by living the life that we have not lived, the life of personal, perfect, and perpetual obedience to God the Father. Jesus never sinned. Having lived a sinless life, the Lord Jesus, he laid his life down on the cross for sinners like us. He was paid our punishment in his death on the cross. But on the third day, God the Father raised Jesus Christ from the dead, vindicating him and proving to us all that his life and death on behalf of repenting sinners was acceptable in God's sight. And because he has been raised from the dead and is now reigning at the right hand of God the Father, Jesus invites everyone everywhere to turn from their sins and to place their faith in him, to trust him for eternal life and salvation. Friend, trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation and eternal future today. If you want to know what it means to live as though you have a home in glory land that outshines the sun, talk with a friend or family member that you came here with this morning. Talk with a coworker who invited you along. There's nothing more important that we'd love to talk to you about than this good news that can be found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we've seen the personal trust of Israel for his future. He knows his future and where he's going. But Israel, Jacob, also has a trust in God for his posterity and their future. We see this in the adoption ceremony that takes place in Genesis 48. Did you know that there was an adoption ceremony in the Bible? Well, there's one right here in Genesis 48. Let's read really the introduction to the adoption ceremony in verses 1 to 13 now. Read Genesis 48, verses 1 to 13. After this, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And it was told to Jacob, Your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me behold I will make you fruitful and multiply and I will make you a company of peoples and will give you and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession and now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon And the children that you you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. As for me, when I came from Padon to to my sorrow, uh, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way, when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath. And I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, who are these? Joseph said to his father, they are my sons, whom God has given me here. And he said, bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age, so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near to him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face. And behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left hand and Manasseh in his left toward Israel's right and brought them uh, near him. We're told that, uh, we were already told that Israel was about to die at the end of chapter 47. But as chapter 48 opens, we learn that he's not dead yet. He's not even mostly dead. Uh, he is ill, but he rallies to adopt Ephraim and Manasseh. He summons his strength, he sits up in bed. And in verses three to seven, Israel testifies to the goodness and the grace of God. He reminds Joseph and his sons that God is God Almighty. Jacob is testifying that to Joseph that God has irresistible power, inexhaustible power, infinite power, and that God has been personal and powerfully present throughout the whole of Jacob's life. God made promises to Jacob that he would become a company of peoples and God and, and that God would give. Canaan to Jacob's offspring for an everlasting possession. And as you can see there in verse 5, Jacob is inviting Joseph's sons to be adopted into his family as full sons. Jacob says, they are mine, just like Reuben and Simeon are mine. Reuben and Simeon, you'll recall, were actually Jacob's firstborn and secondborn sons. Jacob is saying that, that these boys, Ephraim and Manasseh, are going to be adopted into the family and receive the inheritance rights of the first and second-born sons. He's giving them kind of pride of place in the inheritance rights. Reuben and Simeon, they're going to move down the chain of inheritance rights for a number of reasons, but not least of which is that Ephraim and Manasseh are considered descendants of Jacob's beloved wife, Rachel. That's mentioned there in verse 7. Now, notice the characterization that happens there in verses 8 to 11. Israel asks, who are these? Israel actually knows who these boys are. Uh, Jacob, Israel, he already named them in verse five. And what you need to realize that this is actually formal adoption language. It's kind of like the language that I ask when presiding over a wedding ceremony. So after the father has walked the, the bride down the aisle, I'll ask who gives this woman to be married to this man. Uh, I know who is gonna be giving this woman to be married to this man. I mean, seen him take a five minute walk down the aisle. Uh, we had a wedding rehearsal the night before. I know who's gonna be giving this woman away. The purpose of the question is to formally and publicly proclaim that the father is giving his daughter away. Something like that's happening here with Israel's question here. Jacob, you see, he he orders these sons to be brought to him so that he may bless them. Now, do you remember the last time a blessing of a patriarch was passed on to descendants in the book of Genesis? It was back in Genesis chapter 27. When Isaac, Israel, or Jacob's father, blessed the younger Jacob instead of the older Esau. And do you remember what that passage said about Isaac's eyesight? It said that his eyes were dim and that he could not see. Do you see verse 10 again? Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age so that he could not see. Do you see what we're getting? We're getting a replay of Jacob's blessing from Isaac. Jacob, he he warmly takes these boys into his arms, he shows them fatherly affection. And when I say boys, uh, what is really the case is that Ephraim and Manasseh were probably somewhere around 20 years of age or older. Uh, To the young men, to the old men of this congregation, uh, let me encourage you to show manly and masculine affection like this. Fathers, embrace and kiss your sons, even when they grow up. And sons, embrace and kiss your fathers and grandfathers, even as you grow up. You can see how precious and overwhelming this moment is to Jacob in verse 11. Jacob never expected to see Joseph again. But God has been so good to restore Joseph to him and to give him grandsons to delight. In, in verses 12 and 13, Joseph he removes these uh, young men from Jacob's knees. This is actually a ceremonial adoption gesture. It's it's signaling that it's now as if these young men came from Jacob's loins. Uh, Joseph then takes his sons and in verse 13 he arranges them so that the older son will receive the blessing from Israel's right hand and the younger son will receive the blessing from Israel's left hand. In the ancient Near East, birth order was extremely important. And the older son was always to receive the superior blessing. That's why Joseph brings Manasseh toward Israel's right hand. And uh, again, in the ancient Near East, the, the right hand was considered the place of prominence and prestige. So Joseph is is doing everything according to ancient custom. Joseph's oldest uh, will get the best blessing from Jacob's right hand, and his youngest will receive the remaining blessing from his left hand. But it is at this moment that Jacob, that Israel, throws Joseph a curveball. Let's find out what he does here. Follow along as I read, beginning there in verse 14 uh, to 22, the end of the chapter. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day. The angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys, and in them let my name be carried on, and the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. When Joseph saw that his father had laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. And he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people. And he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he. And his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you, Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God, make you as Ephraim and Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you rather than to your brothers one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. Joseph was so ready for his father to receive Ephraim and Manasseh as sons into his family, as full sons, but he was not ready for Jacob, for Israel, to cross his hands. And we can see that in verses 17 and 18. Joseph, he doesn't understand what his father is doing. Uh, Perhaps he thinks that because of his father's Old age, his poor eyesight, that he's made a mistake, or that because, because perhaps Joseph kind of arranged them there, he heard the shuffling around, um, that he, he made a mistake. Um, perhaps his father was confused. But Jacob, Israel, has not made a mistake. This is intentional. He assures Joseph that he has crossed his hands by design. Israel assures Joseph that he intended to give the younger the greater blessing than the older. Yes, Israel may not be able to physically see, but he can see spiritually. In fact, Israel can finally see spiritually. Jacob, Israel, has learned that God's grace often overturns all of our expectations. That's why he puts Ephraim ahead of Manasseh. The ordinary expectation is the older would be before the younger, but God is overturning that expectation. God, in His grace, blesses the undeserving, That's who Jacob was. Yes, he's a patriarch. He was one who inherited the covenant promises, but it's not because he deserved them, but because God was gracious to him. Jacob was the younger, and he received the blessing. That was the nature of God's grace. God overturned the normal expectations of the older son receiving the blessing. That's why Jacob was blessed, and not Esau. This is a lesson that Joseph, Ephraim, that Manasseh, and that all of God's people need to learn about God's grace. Jacob tells Joseph that these young men, that God has a history of mercy and grace toward his covenant people. God has shown grace and mercy down through the generations to undeserving men in Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. God has shown Jacob personal mercy and grace throughout the whole course of his life, even though he didn't deserve it. I mean, God's grace doesn't come to you because of your birth order or your birthplace. Simply because you're born into a Christian home. Grace does not come to you because you've lived flawlessly. No, Jacob has lived a flawed and faulty life. He was a fallen man. And still, do you see what he testifies to there? That God has been my shepherd all my life long to this day. I mean, think of everything that Jacob has gone through, lived through. Jacob lived through conflict with his brother, fleeing home from the threat of murder, deception and difficulty from his father-in-law, Deception and difficulty that he also gave to others. The death of his father he lived through, the death of his mother, the death of his most beloved wife. Jacob has lived through a daughter who was defiled and sons who brought destruction, death, danger, deceit, and difficulty upon the entire family. And yet what does Jacob say? God has been with me. He's been my shepherd my whole life long. God was shepherding Jacob through all of this. That's the only reason that Jacob made it through. Beloved, because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, we can trust him to shepherd us through all of our difficulty too. Not only today, but on into our eternal future. God has shown Jacob redeeming grace and mercy. You see that there in verse 16. Jacob says that he was redeemed from all of his evil. This God of personal and redeeming grace is the God who is to be with these boys. The God who will bless these boys. And what is so astounding to me about these particular verses is that Jacob's action here is the epitome of faith to the writer of the Hebrews. Did you know that? So in in Hebrews chapter 11, when we come to that great hall of faith where these people in the Old Testament were great examples of what it means to trust God in the midst of their circumstances, the writer of the Hebrews looks at this event in Jacob's life As the epitome the expression of his faith so in Hebrews chapter 11 verse 21 he says this by faith Jacob when he was dying blessed each of the sons of Joseph bowing in worship over the head of his staff why would this be the epitome of faith for Jacob why would this be highlighting the highlight of Jacob's faith in his life I mean doesn't Jacob think of his life doesn't Jacob have other highlights in his life didn't he have that fantastic vision of the ladder coming down from heaven? And didn't he believe the promises of God? Did he trust God, have faith in God for those promises there at Bethel? Wasn't that a great display of faith? It was. But didn't Jacob also wrestle the angel of the Lord and not let go at Peniel? Wasn't that a great display of faith for Jacob? It was. So why is the reason for the right of the Hebrews Why does he view this as the epitome of Jacob's faith? Because faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Here, Jacob is trusting God for the future of the nation and these boys as a part of the nation. Jacob trusts that God will ensure that through these young men, the name of Israel will be carried on. Jacob trusts that God will continue to be gracious through his covenant promises to them and on into the future. Do you see Jacob's trust in God for the future through these boys? Jacob blesses them because he's confident that the God who blessed him would bless them in the days ahead. And let me just urge you to to think about who is saying these things. It's an older man on his deathbed. So can I say to you, dear older saints, or perhaps you say, dear chronologically mature saints, follow after your saving And sovereign God and let me urge you to continue to to encourage the younger generation with the truth that they can trust God for their future dear older saints would you pass on this faith to trust in God to to us and to our children would you tell us of how God has been your Shepherd your whole life long how he's redeemed you from evil how he's walked with you through difficulty That's a role that I believe that you can play, a role you should play in the life of our church family. Help us to trust God for our future. And young people, let me encourage you to come alongside older saints in our church family. Offer to take them out to lunch and pay for it and ask them about how God has been faithful to them in their lives. Ask them to tell you about the goodness they've seen from God in their lives. Now, after expressing his trust in God for the future with respect to Ephraim and Manasseh, Jacob, Israel, uh, he turns to to Joseph to give him one final encouragement. Do you see it there in verses 21 and 22? These are, are really profound words. Verse 21, Israel says, I am about to die. In other words, he's telling Joseph, I'm about to leave you. But do you see what he says next? But God. Wonderful words in the Bible. I'm about to die but God will be with you. I'm about to leave you, but God will never leave you. God will always be with you. Israel is trusting that God will be with Joseph and go with Joseph into the future. Not only did Israel believe for himself that he would return to the land of Canaan, but he believed that God would bring Joseph, all his children, back to the homeland of Canaan. Israel believed this truth so strongly that he assured Joseph, that he, his descendants would inherit a special piece of the promised land in Shechem. It was a land that Israel took from the Amorites that he was giving to Joseph and his descendants. Israel passed on his trust in God for the future because when it came time for Joseph to die in Genesis 49, Joseph made the same request that his father made. Joseph requested that his bones would be buried in Shechem. Joseph, like his father, believed that God would keep the promises to Abraham. The promises that God made to Abraham way back in Genesis chapter 15. There God told Abraham that though his descendants would sojourn in a foreign land for 400 years, God would bring them up again and settle them in Canaan. And God, he kept all of those promises to his people. And they trusted him in the present for the future. Beloved, just as God made and kept promises to his people in the past, he has made and is keeping his promises To us today just as his people trusted him in the present for their future so we should trust him now and always and this is what I want us to think about as we conclude why is it that we can trust God now and always the answer is found there in Jacob's words to Joseph in verse 21 God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers the Lord Jesus has sent his spirit to mediate the presence of Jesus Christ to us Jesus is with us and will be with us until he calls us home into his eternal kingdom. I mean, do you realize that the meal that we're about to partake of proclaims this very truth to us and we proclaim it to each other in this meal. When Jesus gave his disciples this meal, Luke chapter 22, verse 18, Jesus told them that he would not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Well, what does that mean? It means the kingdom of God is going to come. Our Lord Jesus is coming. He is coming to get us. Jesus is not an imaginary friend. He really is with us by the Holy Spirit. And he is coming to bring us into his eternal kingdom, into the land that our fathers of the faith hoped for and longed for. Beloved, Jesus is with you and will be with you to the end. And in the end, you will be with Jesus. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this word from your word. How through Jacob's personal testimony, his own personal conviction and trust in faith, you are teaching us that you are God who is with us and will go with us everywhere we go. Heavenly Father, help us to walk with courage in this world today. Help us to invite others to come to know Christ and to go home to his promised land in your wise time. Father, we pray and ask that you would help us, each one of us, to trust in Jesus Christ as our sacrifice and our Savior and the security of our eternal future. We pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.